Turn with me over to the book of Job, chapter 19. The book of Job, chapter 19, verses 23 through 26. The title of the message today is My Redeemer Lives. My Redeemer Lives. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Verse 25. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he and that at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, verse 26, yet my flesh, in my flesh, I shall see God. Lord, help as we study your word today. Two things I'd like to talk to you about in this passage. One, inscribed self-indication. And two, inscribed redemption. Job is one of the finest men in the Bible. I don't know that you're going to meet a better one. There were his equals, but I don't think anybody exceeds him. He lives somewhere between the time of Noah and Abraham. And in fact, the book of Job is the first book that is written in the Bible. Now, it's not the first book of the Bible. Genesis is that. But it's the first book that was written. And this was a man who was described by God as righteous. Now, it's one thing when you can declare your own righteousness. It's another thing when others think you're pretty good. But when God gives his commentary about your life and says, you all right? That's pretty impressive. The most righteous man in the East, it says. And he was so impressive that God had a conversation with the enemy about him. And it's not that the enemy started the conversation. It was God. He said, have you seen my servant Job? There is nobody like him. Wow. Now that began a situation that Job couldn't manage very well for a good period of time, which has prompted me whenever I'm thinking about whether God ever wants to have a conversation with the devil about me, it's okay. I don't think there would be enough righteousness in my life in order to elicit some kind of response from God to the enemy, but I just wanted him to know, you don't have to talk to him about me at all. I'm good, I'm good. But that conversation began something in Job's life that would be described in, in, in human terms, as best we know how, as extraordinarily difficult. I don't know that anybody had gone through what Job had been through. The conversation yielded a kind of moment where the enemy said to God, the only reason he's good it's because you protect him. If I touch all his stuff, take all of his blessings away, he will curse you to your face. God said, don't think so. Have at it. In one day, all that Job had was gone. His donkeys and his oxen were cared for by some, by some stewards. Some people came and took them all away. One steward was left to kill the rest of them, came back to Job and said, your donkeys and oxen were taken away, and I alone am left to tell you about it. He had camels. He had sheep. A bunch of them. And so he had probably a, 
an international uh, long-term trucking business with the camels. And he had a textile business with the sheep. And he had a short-term U-Haul business with the donkeys and the oxen, as well as farming. All of them taken in one day. He was bankrupt in one day. And then one servant runs in, even as the other one was just finishing his conversation, saying, your, your sons and daughters were having a party, and a great wind came out of no place, struck the house, and they all died. I think that could, that could be described as a really bad day. And most of us would probably be overcome with despondency to such a degree that we would never recover. And we probably would not have responded like Job, who fell on his face and said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's given and he's taken away. I will bless him. Worship came from him in the midst of his loss. Another conversation ensued between God and the enemy. He said, Well, the only reason, really, he's still worshiping you is because you, you're giving him good health. If you take his health away, surely enough, he'll curse you to your face. God said, go ahead. But you can't take his life. Boils. His health failed. He was in such bad condition that when his friends came to minister to him, they did not even recognize him. That's how bad he looked. His whole body was ravaged with disease. And not only did his friends not recognize him, it says that his friends fasted and wept for seven days. That's how bad this was. It got so bad that all of his, if, if you read earlier in the passage in Job 19, all of his servants that used to respect him no longer did. He would tell people to do things as a normal man would who had servants in his house and they wouldn't listen to a word he said. His wife even said, why don't you just curse God and die? Not the kind of encouragement you're looking for, for from your spouse. It was horrible. And Job really doesn't understand why these things are happening. And in the midst of it, though he's not blaming God, he is justifying himself. His friends have come, ostensibly, to console him. But they don't do a very good job of that. Because they are set on a very simplistic theology. One that says, if you do good, good will happen to you. If you do bad, bad will happen to you. If you do good, never will bad happen to you. And if you do bad, never will good happen to you. So his friends begin the process of commiserating with him, but they also want to do some things that get down into his soul and say, you know, there's probably some stuff wrong with you that you don't get. What are you hiding down on the inside there? What did you really do? Because this kind of stuff doesn't happen to good people. This kind of stuff only happens to the most of the the most wicked on the planet. And, and, and obviously, you've been portraying yourself as good, but you must be really, really bad. Job said, I'm not. I'm not. Now, these men were not privy to the conversation that had earlier occurred between God and, and, and the enemy. 
They didn't hear what God's commentary was about Job. And so they were just going on what they knew to be the kind of theology that made sense to them. Hear me. Our theology is hardly ever perfect. I'm still trying to figure out how best to think right about God and and correctly insert him into my reality. I'm always growing in it. It doesn't mean that the basic tenets of my orthodoxy change. There are some things that are immovable. He is Lord. There is no other. The Father sent the Son to die for my sin. He died on a cross, was buried, and rose. It is one God in three persons. There's orthodoxy that does not change. But everything else about what God does in the world, (laughs) boy, am I challenged on a regular basis. I can't fit him in my box as best as I want to in order for my mind to be able to logically get to the right conclusion. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes really bad stuff happens to really good people. And I scratch my head thinking, why? What in the world was that? How do I begin to tell my church? How do I tell myself that makes any sense? How do I begin to justify you as a good God? To people who want to be confident that tomorrow is going to be better than today. How do we go through this? And please, do not begin to to think that the questioning in my mind is leading to confusion. I'm just questioning in my mind as you question in yours because I am settled in my soul with the goodness of my God. There is no duplicity in my heart that thinks, well, sometimes he's good, sometimes he's not. He's always good. The problem is always us, not him. It is always us. And we think we are deserving of better because we think we are good. And the reason we think we are good is because we compare ourselves with the worst. And when we do that, we always shine. I mean, when we think about Hitler and we think about us, we think, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Fill in the blank with your favorite infamous villain. And that's how we want to to see ourselves in in comparison. And when we do that, we always say, well, I haven't killed nobody. I don't regularly knock off 7-Elevens. I'm always trying to do good. I try not to hurt people. We find ourselves comparing ourselves with ourselves. And when we do that, we find ourselves deceived. Because we think we are really better and thus deserve better than we get. Please hear me. I love people. And generally people are trying, I think, to to do what they can to be better than bad. I really believe that. But the reality is we are all sinners. We are all people who have broken the laws of God and have done it repeatedly. In fact, we're really good at it. We are skilled at it. We invent ways of sinning doing wrong and we lie we cheat no you may not have done the most heinous thing i.e murder somebody but jesus even upped the ante with respect to how we need to judge our own souls he says you've heard it said do not murder i tell you this if you have called your brother a fool if you hate your brother in your heart you have already committed murder 
Before God, it, he says, if it happens here, you're guilty. Now, please do not equate it happening here with the severity of it happening there. Simply because you might be guilty before God here doesn't mean you say, eh, I'm already guilty. I might as well carry it out. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's dumb. That's really dumb. Because the consequences of what happens here are different than the consequences of what happens there. Before God, you can just say, I'm sorry, I repent. You do wrong out here, you're going to jail. And other people have lost the opportunity to progress or you have retarded their progress or you have ended their progress. Don't think that it equates in terms of consequences with the same thing here as the same thing there. It does not. But our issue is, how can we be right before God here? Because if we can be right before God here, we won't do there. We won't get that done out there and cause more problems. If we think about here, all of us are really, really guilty. Wrong as wrong can be. And there's Job. These men are trying to figure out how this horrible, these horrible things have happened to him when he is so good. And, and, and if you look at Job 29, chapter 29, you'll see all the things that Job did. An amazing human being. Amazing. Job could be my pastor. I'd follow him. He's, an, he's outstanding in his public presentation and in his soul. And his friends just can't figure out these bad things don't happen to good people because the theology is just so simple. But Job is constantly trying to defend himself. Which only brings his friends into a greater degree of entrenching themselves and saying, come on, fess up, what's wrong with you? What did you do to deserve this? And this is Job's one flaw. Is that he doesn't think he deserves any of this to happen to him. Let me give you a definition. Grace is receiving that which you... Let me make sure I've got it right. Mercy is, re is not receiving what you do deserve. Grace is receiving that which you don't deserve. Mercy, not receiving what you do deserve. Grace, receiving what you don't deserve. If you believe you deserve more than what you really deserve, you'll get those definitions all mixed up. And you won't get grace. You'll get what you, sometimes what you think you deserve, but not all the time. And what you really believe you deserve, you may not get, but what you really do deserve, you might. And you will be disappointed in getting what you do deserve because you think you deserve more. Job was in this category. I deserve better. I've lived my life as best as anybody can. I am known reputation-wise as the greatest man, the most righteous man in the East. How is it that this is happening to me? He wasn't blaming God directly, but he was looking at his life thinking, this doesn't make sense. But he was neglecting the idea that all of us are deserving of death. All of us. And as a result of Job's quandary and his self-justification and 
he was telling his friends, you all are really, really wrong. He was arguing with them. What we get is this back and forth that, that entrenches both parties in each of their positions. And it doesn't allow the grace of God to be inserted whereby reality can come and reveal that which needs to be revealed so that both parties can come to the knowledge of the truth, not just their own perspective. And please understand, on this Easter Sunday morning, I'm going someplace that's really good. Pastor, you started with Job on Easter? Yeah, I know. I get it. But we're going someplace really good in the next five. Stay with me. Here we've got Job entrenching himself in his own righteousness. But yet he says, I know I need a redeemer. He is in the same situation that we find ourselves. I feel like I've done right, yet I still need help. I know I need a redeemer. But I don't know how this thing works together. And he didn't have a picture like we do of all the theology in the New Testament that lets us understand who the Messiah would be and who Jesus would be to us. He didn't know any of that. But he knew something about the process of redemption. Why? Because it had been passed down from Grandpa Adam. Grandpa Adam, Abel, and Cain had all been sacrificing. Why? Because they realized that something needed to die. They had been sacrificing animals on a regular basis. Or the fruit of the ground on a regular basis because they realized they were sinners and they needed to offer something in place of their punishment, their consequence. And it says of Job in chapter 1 that he would offer to God regularly sacrifices for his kids, which meant he was a worshiper. He wasn't just offering sacrifices to God on behalf of his kids only. We don't have any record of what I'm about to say, but if he's doing it for his kids, you know what he's doing it for his family his wife and him, and he's doing it because he loves God. He would offer sacrifices for his kids because he said, I don't know if in their hearts they may, may have cursed God and they, they may not know the right thing to do, but I want to offer on their behalf. Here's a man who knew his family needed redemption beyond that which would come from just their good works. Good works can't get you to where you need to be. You need a replacement. You need somebody who's going to take the punishment that you deserve. Be your substitutionary benefit. All of creation since the time of Adam has realized that. Job said, I need a redeemer. And my redeemer lives. I need help. And, and, and he was so bold though in his, in his just self-justification that he said this. I want my words to be inscribed on a stone with lead. And be careful what you wish for. Because we're reading about it today. He got his wish. Everybody around the world is reading about his flaws. I, want, I am so confident in my righteousness. I want all the world to know how good I am. And God gave him enough leash to hang himself. Oh, I'm not talking about physically, theologically. You get to chapter 38. And, and, and Job and his friends have been talking. Another guy came in who was a fourth. Elihu was young. He's, he's the one that gave the greatest bit of wisdom. Amazing. Four chapters that just astound you with this young man. But you get to chapter 38 and then God talks. God talks. 
And God says, uh, Job, where were you when I made the earth? When I caused Orion to pass by? When, 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 I, when I made the sea and made it stop here? Can you counsel me about how you were a part of that? And he goes through for two chapters, 38 and 39. And in chapter 40, Job says, uh, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't have anything to say. <laughs> I don't have anything to say. Um, I've spoken once, twice, but I, 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 and God says, I'm not done. And so for the next two chapters, he continues to rebuke Job. And then Job says, I put my hand over my mouth. I'm sorry. I'm not done. You are who you are, and I am not who I said I am. Forgive me. This is a man who was trying to figure out how in the world he could justify himself, and God came in and inserted and said, you're not as good as you think. You're not as good as you think. And yet he was doing his best to try to figure out how in the world all this works. And we do our best in a world that is going wrong and gone wrong. Things that have come upon us that cannot be put in the category of a Job experience, yet they are trouble. You're wondering how you're going to get your job back. You're caught up in in the swell of humanity's ills, but you are not responsible. Things that are happening to you that are bad, but you're good. You have some things that you've done right. You're trying to raise your kids right. You're trying to love your wife, your your husband. You're doing all you can to try to be as best as you possibly can, yet you are suffering. How does this work? Please, I beg you, fall on the cross. Do not begin to say, I don't deserve. Where are you, God? He's right there with you. He loves you. He cares. What you need to do is get to the point as quickly as you can without the duplicity of saying, I need a redeemer. I need someone who can take my circumstances and make them, that though they are horrible, make them as if they were his will and turn them around for my good. Leverage the bad and make it great. That's what I need because I don't have that ability. The longer we begin to justify ourselves with our own lives and our own righteous deeds, the farther we are going to get away from the timing of God beginning to insert his goodness to us so that he can fix all the stuff that's wrong, including you, including me. I need a redeemer. He understood that the sacrifice was necessary for him to get right. He knew it to be so, but he couldn't figure out how in the world it was going to happen, yet he said, I Need help. And then he said, I choose to inscribe the fact that I need help. Not only is my Redeemer alive and he's going to come to help me, but I know that he will take his stand with me. He will establish himself with me. He will stand with me. This is the beauty of our God is that even though we are as messed up as we are, he chooses to identify with. He's not there just to rebuke us for all we've done wrong. He says, come. I love you. I love you. I know you're messed up in your brain. I know you don't think right. I know you haven't done right. I know you don't talk right. But come close. I'm here to forgive. I'm here to restore. I will stand with you. My redemption is not just about forgiving you. My redemption is about restoring you. It's not just about taking all of your sin and blotting it out. 
It's about bringing you back to the place that I thought about when I thought about creating you. This is the sacrifice of our God. When Jesus came, it wasn't just about him suffering because he was a good man suffering for a good cause. It was about him suffering so that you could benefit from it. But the only way you can is if you accept what he's done for you, that you actually let him be the substitutionary benefit for your your life. Let him take your death. Let him take your whooping. All the sin and the consequences of it on him. Put it on him and then give him your life so that he can give you his It's a great exchange. You need a redeemer. You need somebody to fix what's wrong in your life. You need somebody to help you get out of the pit in which you've dug for yourself sometimes. You've driven your life into the ditch and you need the Holy Ghost tow truck to pull you out. Jesus wants to come and be that to you. He died on a cross horribly, unmercifully. That he could be your redemptive benefit. You know what redemption means? It simply means to buy back. To buy back. He paid the price to secure your purchase back to him. He's the one who stands with you. And then lastly, he is the one who comes to bring a new life to your old to take what is what 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 is past what is present and put it in the past to no longer allow the things of your past to influence your present or your future he wants to redeem all of your world not just stand with you but make you brand new this is what the resurrection is about if we just ended with good friday hear me I'm not done yet, but hear me. If we had just ended with Good Friday, if that was the end of the story, I'd be happy. Why, at least my sin would be forgiven. At least somebody would have paid the price. At least I wouldn't have to suffer. At least I'd be brought back to equal, innocent, no longer guilty. But God didn't stop there. There's a resurrection, which actually gives us new life. And I think Job may have had just a little bit of insight into this. I don't know, but the language he uses just makes you think. He, got, he waxed a little bit prophetic even in the midst of his self-righteousness. I know that my Redeemer lives. That though somebody needed to make redemption for me by paying the price, he still lives, so he paid and I will see him in my flesh. I will see him in my flesh. Now, I'm not quite sure whether he's talking about the resurrection there because that might be a little bit too prophetic for, for anybody who is in his world, but it could be. But my sense is this, that he's talking about the kind of redemption that is going to bring him from where he is now back to a place where he needs to be, meaning my flesh is wasting away. I've got boils all over my body. My wife doesn't even recognize me, and she thinks I am so hideous that she said, die. That was her encouragement to me. And while you do it, curse God. She was so mad at God for all of this. She wanted him to curse God for her and then die. His body was so ravaged, yet the Lord wouldn't allow him to die. And he said, I think God, I think redemption for me looks like he's going to do something that allows for my body 
to be restored, that in my flesh I will see him. And indeed, Job got restored. His wife had ten more kids. Wow. I guess she was happy he didn't die. He got double all the animals he got. In fact, the blessing for Job, the redemptive benefit, was not just restoring him back to equal, but giving him more. This is what our God does through the resurrection. He doesn't just bring us back to innocent by wiping out our bad. He doesn't just give us manumission and pardons. He says, I'm going to make you righteous. I'm going to make it as if not only you never sinned, but I'm going to make it as if when you stand before God, it's just as I stand before God. When I stand before the Father because you're in me, you stand before the Father. Because I lived right and I was able to take all the punishment for your sin on me because I had never done anything wrong. I had done nothing worthy of death. Therefore, I can take the consequences of all humanity on my own body. And therefore, I could die for all of humanity and be the substitutionary benefit for them. Because of that, I have have conquered all of sin, all of death. And in the process, because I lived well, this is why Jesus had to live 33. Do ministry well. Go through the things that Adam went through. If he was just going to be a person who died on our behalf, he could have done that at 12. He was innocent. He had done nothing wrong and would do nothing wrong. The reason he lived so long is to give us the privilege of understanding what it was like to live in victory on the planet and to live right. He said, I transfer that now to you. Meaning not only are you going to have right standing as I have right standing before God because I've moved away all the sin and lived in such a way that now I can live through you. And as I live through you, I give you my life. I rose from the dead. Now you have the power that I had living on the inside of you. Not only that, our God gives us a privilege of understanding something about what it means to live in victory every day, not just secured toward heaven. Victory every day. Most Christians live in defeat. They have no smell of victory. And victory is supposed to be ours. It is supposed to be ours every day, our inheritance. We ought to have many more victories and defeats. I realize that nobody's perfect. I get that. And I realize Christianity is hard. I get that too. But hear me, life is hard. You just have to choose which version of hard you want. Living the Christian life is hard. It's hard in the beginning because you've got to figure out, oh, I, don't, I want to do that, but I can't do that. Uh, oh, I want her, but I can't have her. Oh, I want to do that, but I can't. Uh, it's just so hard saying no, I get it. But what about the other version of hard that says, well, I said yes to her, and now i got baby mama drama. See, my, 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 the consequences of your version of hard last a long time. The consequences of my version of heart actually turned out to be benefits. It was hard doing the right thing, but for the rest of my life, I'm benefiting. This is cool. I love that. You have to choose which version of heart you want. It is hard to live the Christian life and to deny the flesh on a regular basis. But the power of Jesus Christ is living on the inside of you. There is no way you can do it on your own. His power comes to help you live well. This is the resurrection life. It is not just life to heaven. It is life to live well here on earth. He rose from the dead so that the power of Christ could quicken your mortal body. Romans 8, 11, quicken your mortal body, not 
your spiritual body. That happened. But get down on the inside of your flesh and make your flesh be directed toward doing right. That's the resurrection of our God. I don't know what Job knew, but he said this, my Redeemer lives. He lives. And he lives so you can live. I beg you today, accept what God wants to do for you. Accept what he has done for you and accept what he wants to do for you. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. And I know insecurity and fear fills your tomorrows. None of us know what it's going to be like. We're doing all we can as a church to rally our forces and resources to help people as best we can. And we think it's probably going to be more needed tomorrow than it was last week. And so we're ready for it as best we know how. But I know this, that whatever we have to go through, we get to go through with him. And the world is going to go through hard. The version of hard through which we're going to go is unlike any in our generation probably. Any. The privilege we have as a people of God is we get to go through it with him. We don't go through it alone. Your Redeemer, he lives. He'll take you through hard times. He'll help you. He'll strengthen you. He'll help you come out better than when you came in. Your Redeemer, Christ Jesus, lives, and he lives to stand with you, and he lives to help you come to a brand new place in him and fulfill the purpose for which you have been established, created on the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I love you. I thank you for your goodness and grace. Would you help us as a people to manifest your power and goodness to a community that has no idea who you are and doesn't know where to go? In Jesus' name. If you today realize, gosh, I've never accepted the benefits of my Redeemer. If today you want to come to the knowledge of the truth and give your life to Christ. Say, Lord, my life is yours. Today I'm going to let you be the master of my ship. Where you say go, I'm going to go. What you say do, I'm going to do. What you say, say, I'm going to say. You're going to be my Lord, not just somebody who saves me in a difficult situation. I'm going to obey you, even when times are good. I'm going to obey you. If you, want to, if you want to do that today, I want to lead you in a prayer. Secondly, those who may have prayed that kind of prayer a year, two years, ten years earlier, but you've gotten off track, today is the day to come home. I want to help you. Please pray this prayer with me if you want to come home. In either of those categories, pray this with me. Say, Father in heaven, forgive me. I am sorry for the way I've lived. I choose to turn away from everything I know to be sin and to follow you with all of my heart. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for giving me the privilege of calling Jesus the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name.